You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Happy Wednesday night, Bills Mafia. It's Matt Perino here, and we just finished up recording uh, another episode, our seventh, actually, uh, Wednesday night, Bills Talk Live. This week's guest was Eric Wood, former Bills center, uh, 2015 Pro Bowler, and of course, uh, the starting center uh, on, the, on the team that broke the playoff drought in 2017. Uh, Eric Wood is uh, actually killing it in the podcast game himself. If you haven't checked out his podcast yet, What's Next with Eric Wood? It has quickly become a must-listen if you're a Bills fan. And we had him on today to talk about a number of topics. Obviously, Eric is the color commentator on the radio, along with John Murphy, uh, for every Bills game. And last season was his first year uh, in that role. And so we talked a little bit about that, uh, the transition from player to media. We, we talked about Josh Allen, Mitch Morse, uh, which I was really interested to talk to him about because I think that Given his job and the fact that he watches the Bills every week and his former job as, as a starting center for the Bills, no one better to critique Mitch Morris in his first season. It was a really cool conversation. We got into some fun topics. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. Uh, without any further ado, this is our interview this week with Eric Wood. My man, Eric, you've been a busy man. Thank you so much for fitting us in. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, it's an honor to be asked to come on the show, bud. <laughs> that's awesome well it's cool to hear because i, I we, were, we were going over the show uh ryan and i the last couple of days and it's funny i i remember the 2009 draft uh obviously both ryan and i grew up bills fans and i i remember it specifically because i think that a lot of bills fans you know it's a little bit different than other markets they really i think appreciated the center position more so than most fan bases because of the affinity that we all had for Ken Hall during the Super Bowl era and i think it was like year after year we were just waiting for that franchise center again and then you came along and, and, and you turned out to be just that so i want to say thank you for that oh i appreciate it and um yeah it caught me off guard going up to buffalo cuz they had just picked up jeff hangarner to be their center in free agency. I had no idea the Bills were drafting me to be a guard. I ended up being the first guard selected in the draft, I <laughs> guess you could say. Um, but no, it was it was, it was um, an awesome experience, obviously, getting drafted. Bills had two first-rounders that year, and I'll never forget showing up in Orchard Park the next day in a un- untucked button-down, and then Aaron Maben shows up in a custom – suit and he's dressed to the nines he expected to be uh, up on stage somewhere i thought there was a shot i'd be a first rounder i just didn't uh i didn't have my my work attire probably uh appropriately set at the time mm-hmm. uh, i mentioned the start you've been a busy man uh obviously the podcast is is really taking off uh if you haven't caught it yet what ne- what's next with eric wood uh, it is a great listen every time that it's out. I make sure to follow it all the time because what you're doing is allowing fans like a cool um, experience to not only experience what you, you, you know, what you went through during your career, but kind of going over all of these things with people that you cross paths with, former teammates, coaches. Uh, so it's a really cool thing. How, how has that gone launching the podcast and, and kind of the success that you've had recently? It's been a ton of fun, honestly. And when I launched the podcast, I didn't have either of my broadcast gigs lined up and I needed to create some content. And I I wanted to talk to a bunch of people that had either transitioned out of football, transitioned in business. So this looked like pastors of mega churches. It's big time business CEOs. It was um, retired football players. 
you know, people in broadcasting, just different people that I could honestly learn from. And then now with this quarantine time, I had a lot more time on my hands. I wanted to boost the listeners a little bit. And so there were some guys like Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott and Ryan Fitzpatrick, Kyle Williams, Lorenzo Alexander, those types of guys. I knew I could hit some good markets uh, coming up. we got a fascinating one coming out Monday with Brian Murphy, who is the president of Athletes First. Athletes First represented mm-hmm. of the first and second round draft picks in this year's NFL draft. So it's really cool listening to him and him talking about being a sports agent because I think everybody grows up and if you can't play sports, you want to talk about it or maybe represent them and you see them with their first round picks and you see the glamorous side. And I, I try, he's a, he's a glass half full type of guy, but I try to get him to peel back on maybe some of the drawbacks of the agency business. Um, So that's a fascinating one. Uh, The following week will be, Titans head coach, Matt Vrabel, or Mike Vrabel, I'm sorry. And Mike, it was fascinating to me because he is a former player that transitioned into coaching. Uh, it's also a Bills opponent this year. Um, and just a guy who I had a lot of respect for. Our careers overlapped and then I actually played against him while he was a coach. So a really cool experience. And, and I would always connect with him at the Kentucky Derby. So that was kind of my in to get him to come on my podcast. And that was a lot of fun to record as well. You know, Eric, you just mentioned that a lot of these players either go into media or go into coaching. Uh, what cho- what made you choose to go into the media side of things? And then who's who has helped you the most with this transition to date? Yeah, so the hours of coaching scare me. I'll, I'll be dead honest. And these guys um, have so much respect from me and the and the players because of how much time they put in at the office. I I, I don't think people truly understand you heard sean mcdermott talk about most of his days start at 4 a.m and if he's lucky he gets home in time to tuck his kids into bed the college game is often even just a little bit worse sometimes their in-season hours are a little bit less because the guys are at school for a block of the day but then as soon as the off-season hits it's recruiting and now you're gone on the road five to seven days and you're completely gone from your family and so for me transitioning out of ball Coaching is something that will always appeal to me because it scratches that competitive itch. You're out there getting the true wins and losses. And that's one thing. Yes, I'm calling Bills games and I'm calling ACC games. So when I'm around the Bills games, I'm, I'm rooting for them. And I'm allowed to. I'm the Bills radio analyst. I can root for them. But when the Bills win, I don't go to the locker room. And I'm not saying that I should go to the locker room after the game. I didn't earn that. I didn't put in the hours. But, but that's kind of the – Ooh, I, I wish that I was a little bit more a part of, you know, helping them get to wins. Uh, but I'm truly appreciating this role. When you ask who helped me transition in, when I first, when my career first ended, I got a number of messages from national media members that said, hey, if you ever need a help, you're always so good to me. If you ever need any help, reach out. I spoke to guys like Albert Breer, Ian Rappaport, uh, Mike Silver. Ian Rappaport actually helped me um, select a broadcast agent. So I'm with United Talent Agency. Jerry Silberwitz is my guy there. He's been extremely helpful for me. But it's it's little things, man. It's um, My first game I ever called was for Fox, and I didn't know either team. It was Iowa State and Kansas State, and I got connected with Chris Spielman. And I said, Chris, if you weren't familiar with either team where do you even start in a week i got notified of my game on monday of thanksgiving week and i was calling the game saturday so i had thanksgiving festivities i got to travel and all that where do you start and so just little stuff like i would watch two tv copies for each game just so you hear the names hear the storylines you don't want to be repetitive these fan bases have all watched their team so you can't just piggyback stories that have already been said um the guys i got to call games with last year in west durham and roddy jones with acc network were great with helping me transition to the business and then obviously working with guys like john murphy and sal and getting to know steve tasker guys that are are in the buffalo market uh helped me out considerably as well What's what's kind of been like the transition from that locker room? Because I remember right after you know your retirement, still coming back, being on the practice. Not that you're still on the practice field when you're when you're around, but it's just the dynamics got to be a little bit different. So what was that like? And is it is it almost like after now a few years removed from the retirement, you're almost kind of treated a little bit differently? Absolutely, and and I treat my own situation differently. I'll never forget 
this year, I was at the team hotel the morning of a preseason game because I'm staying where they stay. And mm -hmm. I had just caught a workout down at the Marriott Harbor Center. And Sean McDermott's like, we just got that brand new workout facility and you caught a workout here. And I'm like, I, I didn't know I was invited. I don't want to step on people's toes. I don't want them to think I'm still trying to be a player. I'm allowed to go to their meals because I'm technically a Bills employee. Mm -hmm. And so I'm allowed to go to their meals. But I try not to hang around the players too much. But after games, you know, a lot of times – Lee Smith invites me to dinner or Kyle's back in town or the where I'm out with Lorenzo and the other guys are there. And it's funny because at times I'll ask him a question like, Hey, how you feeling? And I'm like, this is completely off the record. Like nothing you tell me if it's, if I think it's at all controversial, I'm not going to break it. You know, I, I'm not in this business. Um, I respect the guys like Ian Rappaport and Adam Schefter that break stories. And if it's something that someone wanted me to put out there, I would gladly do it. Um, I did that a lot in the preseason. I talked to the coaches. Hey, what are some young guys you want me to promote through the broadcast? But I'm never going to reveal injury. So, you know, if someone walks into a restaurant and after the game in a walking boot, I would never, ever reveal that. But I think, uh, especially some of these guys that don't know me, don't understand that I'm, I'm not trying to push that narrative. So uh, there, there is a different dynamic. And a lot of it's probably self-induced on my end, just because I'm so conscientious of not wanting to be that guy that can't get out of the locker room or still thinks he's a part of the team or thinks he's too much a part of these wins when he hasn't truly earned it. How much in the room, and this is kind of a selfish question just because, you know, I'm a beat writer and so I'm in the locker room all the time. How much is it where you guys are talking, you know, going back to your playing days about that dynamic between the reporter and the player? Because from our vantage point, it's it's kind of a weird thing. Like, you know, so I spent five years in the UFC and so I was, I was like you, I was part of the team or the league, you know what I mean? So my relationship with fighters was very different than it is now where I'm expected to be an unbiased, you know, reporter. And so sometimes, you know, we're standing in the middle of that room and, you know, I built some nice relationships in two years and I, and I like to think of myself as a pretty friendly guy, but it is a, a weird dynamic where I think both sides of it kind of, need something out of the other side more so the reporter than the player yeah for sure and and i always had a tremendous amount of respect for the media guys and i think that um helped me transition into media because i tr i try to treat all those guys extremely well tim graham's actually become a really good buddy of mine he's the only one that i had like a I'll call it a mini spat with, and it was more, he reported um, about a training camp fight that I got in, quoted me on some uh, rough language I use, and I just wish he wouldn't have. And mm -hmm. so I thought, well, I'm just going to kind of shut down on him for a while because he reported something I said on a, I didn't say it to him. There was a lot of other reporters there that none of them tweeted it or put it out in articles. So I kind of had an issue with that, but Tim Graham ends up being the guy that drives from Buffalo to Louisville to do a story for me before the start of the 2018 season on how I was doing. And man, that just meant the world to me. So, um, but yes, to, to, to fully answer your question, there's a lot of guys in the locker room, especially when you have to be unbiased at times um, to even capture an audience that they read those negative articles and they think this guy's a jerk and they don't fully understand it. I think I was always pretty, um, I don't want to say I wasn't naive, but it's just, I understood you guys had a job to do. I was very close to the WGR guys. I had a show with them every Monday. We had a mm. great relationship. There was only one time and we still joke about it now that they asked me a question that afterwards I, I said like, that was, that was off base. I wish you wouldn't have said it. And it was actually, we actually brought it up this year because at my roast, EJ Manuel came up and I said, you know, Tyrod was hurt. EJ was starting. And I said, you know, and I have confidence that we can go out and get a win this week. And Shope was like, what has EJ ever done to give you confidence in that? And so I gave a fairly political answer. And then afterwards I stayed on the line and I was like, Hey, that, or actually I shot him a text message. Like, Hey, we have a really good relationship and you put me on the spot and you know, I don't talk bad about teammates and I know you have to do your job, but you could have done that off air and just asked a hypothetical as opposed to putting me on the spot. So there, there are guys though that in the locker room and I, I know you've guys have experienced it that, that shy away from the media guys. 
Well, Tim, Tim's a, a friend of mine and actually a big reason why I got this job. I knew him from when he covered some UFC stuff. So um, I, I uh, agree. I, I think that he's one of the best in the business, especially, you know, in this market and, and beyond. But I have a, a cool story that I want to share because I think it, it, it speaks to that dynamic of trust between the players and the, and the media. And it was my first year on the beat. So 2018 and um, obviously a struggle of a season for Buffalo and towards the end of it, you know, no pro bowlers, uh, no, nobody earned pro bowl status. And, and there was, you know, noticeable anger about it in the room. Cause there's a lot of guys that had a lot of pride that thought that they played really well, especially on that defensive side of the ball. And I had heard Steven Hauschka just in the locker room say something uh, 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 or at, in the field house across to Micah Hyde. And, and, and I led my story with it, not even really putting into context or really thinking about because we, we hustle so much, you know what I mean? So I think in that moment, I was just like, I heard that probably from three or four different guys in the room in different kind of conversations. And I felt like what he said really told the story the way I wanted to tell it. But all I had to do was walk up to him and say, Hey, Steve, do you mind if I use that to start my thing? But I didn't, I went with it because we're always hustling and we're writing multiple stories, but it was a learning lesson. And I think that he respected the fact that I owned up to a mistake. Micah came up to me and said, Oh, I didn't care if you used it, but uh, you know, I think that they all did. I think it's that dance that goes back and forth that you got to kind of feel each other out and, and it's a learning process, just like football is for you guys. Yeah. And definitely. And, and to your point, there's a lot of locker room chatter that you guys could report on. You could report on dynamics. You could report on, um, you know, like a guy like Shaq Lawson, who you've been around the last couple of years. He's hilarious. He's making fun of guys constantly doing impressions. Like I'm sure some stuff is a little off color, especially for non people, people that are not familiar with the locker room. Mm -hmm. And you guys could write a story about something like that. You know, with me and Richie, when we we're in the locker room, like I'm sure you heard banter between people heard banter between me and Richie that, you know, people could have said, oh, they could have gone any direction they wanted. And that's where the mutual respect level comes. It's like, hey, if we give you something, run with it. And and but that that is where as a player, you also have to give them something to use because you're in there to do a job. 100%. You know, you, you bring up, you know, winning and, and you know, the, the vibe in the locker room. And it, it's unbelievable how, you know, a winning culture from the top down can change the dynamic of that. Just from conversations I've had, you know, with certain media members about what things have been like, you know, in your era from, from staff to staff and, you know, the turnover and so on and so forth, you can tell that there is legitimate buy-in right now at what's going on um, in Orchard Park. And I think that that starts with Brandon and it starts with Sean. And, you know, he's revered in that room. I mean, everybody I've talked to the last two years, whether it be a guy that's not with the team anymore or a guy that's on the roster right now, they'll they'll run through a wall for the guy. And and I, th I heard on your recent podcast where you called him one of the best leaders that you've ever met. Why is that? How, how is he able to do this and create this culture? Yeah, so I, I would say the first... Um, the, the top quality I see from Sean McDermott from a leadership standpoint is how consistent he is as a person. So just structured and day to day approach. Um, he's always the first one in the building. He's always catching a workout himself. He's always prepared for meetings. He always has something on point to say. He's always has his defense prepared. And when you have a guy like that, that is just so consistent, he's always consistent with how he treats you. He calls your wife by her first name. He mentioned your kids by their names. He's just a consistent person. And when you when you have that, it's easy to follow people like that. He's also charismatic. He's well-spoken. He's passionate. He's into it. Um, you know, so he has a lot of other great uh, leadership characteristics. He's also a servant leader. It's amazing how you'll just catch him doing little things around the building that you just realize how humble he truly is. And that's probably from getting the start that he did as low man on the totem pole in Philadelphia. But, you know, he's picking up plates for people in the cafeteria. Like head coaches don't generally do that, uh, but he does it. And I'm not saying it's not calculated maybe, but it's just a, hey, I'm willing to do it. So come follow me. 
Um, and then you mentioned Brandon Bean. It's the the relationship that they have and how they're both on the same page. And I asked them both individually because this was just a crazy time. In 2017, in the preseason, we trade, and it was a shock to all of us, honestly. We trade Sammy and we trade Darby. We then go trade Marcel. And we're sitting in a in a small meeting with Sean, and he's sitting in there like, we are not tanking. We just we had they don't um, they don't necessarily fit our scheme, you know, fit what we're trying to do, uh, fit our culture, our DNA. And we're like, OK, that's well and good, Sean. But I'm going into my ninth year. Kyle's going into his 11th year. Zoe's going into his 11th year. Like we're not trying to go out and play for a tank like screw your tank. We're going to go try and win and you better bring in some bodies because like we are trying to win up. Uh, Sean mentioned on the podcast, he said, I was like, yeah, that's well and good, Sean. But where are re- reinforcements coming in? <laughs> and uh, and so like we had, we ended up getting Jordan Matthews, who ended up getting injured, but he had a productive season for us. We bring in EJ Gaines, who had a phenomenal season for us. So we did bring in guys and we ended up breaking the playoff drought. But I asked Sean, I said, how confident were you when you were in there? that we were going to make the playoffs and that's what you were preaching. And he said, honestly, it was so day to day. I don't even know if I ever like truly thought about it, but I just knew that we weren't going to throw in the towel in the season. And so, but, but Sean and Brandon and what Brandon has done with the salary cap situation that he inherited to be able to draft the way he did make moves in the draft, because, you know, we win enough games in 2017 to put them out of position to draft a quarterback, but then to move Cordy Glenn and move up in the draft for Josh Allen and get Tremaine Edmonds. So you have your stalwart on both sides of the ball to be able to do that. And you draft guys like Matt Milano and Tredavis White, all these guys that are just phenomenal. And then kind of play the bargain game with um, different guys on the roster to bring in, you know, receivers like a John Brown who comes in on an APY under 10 and has over a thousand yards receiving last year, like to identify talent like that. I I just think, and and I don't want to single out Brandon because Brandon's got a good staff under him with Joe Shane and Dan Morgan and and the rest of the group, but I'm, I'm just blown away by the job they've done. And now you set yourself up for success when you have a quarterback heading into year three who's still on his rookie contract, you can kind of play that Russell Wilson game that they did out in Seattle where you pay a lot of guys whose contracts expire right about when you're going to have to pay your franchise quarterback if Josh, you know, if that they so choose to do that with Josh in a year or two. So you have a bunch of guys who's you can get out of their contracts. And I, I just I just think what they've done has been phenomenal. You know, going back to that 2017 season, between trading off guys like Watkins and Darby and Darius, uh, you guys got off to that fast start. You're you're five and two, and then you go through, as you mentioned, the podcast, the the worst three game losing streak in team history to the Jets, the Saints, and the Chargers. How was Sean able to keep the locker room, especially during that three game losing streak where you guys had been there before? You got off to those fast starts, and there had been collapses. How did how was he able to keep you guys on track so that way you could end up going nine and seven and ending that playoff drought? Yeah, so Sean's always been really good. At the day after games, he'll 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 show us a bunch of clips the day after a game, and, and it's mainly positive, especially after losses. He's trying to build you back up, and then after losses, it might be some nitpicky stuff, but it's not. It's never a hey, this guy dropped a pass, we needed that catch, or this guy missed the field goal, or whatever it may be. It's little things like if you fit this gap just the way you're supposed to, and we've seen you do it all year this play doesn't happen to our defense or, you know, if guys are hustling, we get to this fumble. It's not, it's never, Hey, you can't put the ball on the ground. It's everybody's gotta be hustling the football so that we can pick this up. And he just does a great job of that. Um, You know, he, the entire time he was preaching, Hey, we're not far away. It's little stuff. It's fundamentals. It's technique stuff. We can get corrected throughout the week. And, and he just got, he kept doing a great job of just pouring into us each and every week. And when it gets cold up in Buffalo and you don't see the sun anymore from November through the end of the season, I thought Sean did a great job of keeping it pretty lively. You know, we would play knock, you know, we would play a game of horse in the morning offense versus defense, or he'd pull up a Madden scenario up on the screen and have it be offense versus defense or whatever it may be. He was keeping it lively. So spirits kind of stayed up even through a a crap time. 
Um, you you mentioned uh, Sammy Watkins a little while ago, and obviously he, he was in the news. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about that story if you were able to read it from Tyler Dunn and and, and some of the things that Sammy said. It's like Sammy, fair or not, he's got this weird place in Bills history because the expectations were so so high on him because the Bills traded up and on no fault of his own. I mean, that's just the way that it kind of played out. And, you know, he had the run that he had here. They moved on. What What's your takeaway now in a media role uh, of the Sammy Watkins era in Buffalo? You hit the nail on the head with how high the expectations were. And honestly, when he showed up for training camp that year, we worked him like a dog because we were so excited about him and we mm -hmm. knew what he could be for that offense. And Sammy is such a hard worker. Um, almost to a fault, you know, because he was pushing through injuries. He did a hamstring, and then he had that nagging foot that honestly took away a lot of his juice as a player, and a lot of what Sammy's game was built on was speed and explosion. And when you have a literally a bone in your foot that you're worried about breaking at all times, it's extremely tough to play on, especially for a receiver. Um, we also didn't necessarily have elite quarterback play, the best – the most – prolific passer he played with was probably Kyle Orton. Um, but all those things considered, he just, he didn't live up to the hype and, that, and that's the reality of it. But then he goes and wins the Super Bowl this year. He's on a good team out in Kansas city and, and he, he played well. Um, I didn't see a lot of the, you know, he, he mentioned he was drinking too much and all that. Sammy wasn't a partier to me. You know, if he was doing that, it was kind of on his own time in seclusion. Um, and he lived in our neighborhood so, you know, we our, our neighbor, he was living there with his fiance and his daughter and our neighborhood was a pretty family oriented neighborhood. It wasn't like um, some of these bigger cities where the crazy nights are extremely wild. It was like, go grab some wings and a beer and watch Monday Night Football or get together at someone's house, which I thought was phenomenal and had a blast doing over the years. But I didn't see all that. Um, and, and I can't really speak to it. Not that I'm doubting that it happened. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if he was putting too much pressure on himself that if he did ever have a good time, he feels like he, he went off the deep end and sabotaged his career in Buffalo. Like I kind of caught the vibe through the Tyler Dunn article. Mm -hmm. The culture piece to the NFL, I think is one of the most interesting parts that I found covering the league and a team because coming into it, I didn't really put a lot of thought into it, but you know, right off the bat, as I, as I'm like kind of hustling, I started right before camp in 2018, you know, you, you hear people with, you know, on, on both sides of the fence when it comes to how important culture is. And I'm an advocate now after seeing it up close and personal, I think culture is so important because, you know, I think that, you know, Brandon talks about it all the time, getting our caliber of player and person. And I think that that really plays because I'm not saying that had, you know, the Brandon Bean been here and Sean McDermott been here, they wouldn't have taken Sammy. But I think being able to, you know, really evaluate people, you know, on a personal front and a, on a player front and then how they fit into your system and your culture, I think that matters. I think I think it does, too. And I always think back to the Colts team with um, Chuck Pagano when he got cancer and, and that wasn't that good of a football team. They had a young Andrew Luck. But they willed themselves to the playoffs in a great season that year because you had complete buy-in. Everybody was on a mission towards the same cause. And when you have complete buy-in in an organization, and that can come from a unifying force like that, or it can come from simply drafting guys and bringing in guys that work hard or blue-collar, who stay out of trouble, who want to do the right things, you just you create this culture. Um, and that's not necessarily a winning culture. But that's an effort culture. That's an expectation culture. And ultimately, I always say it, it's 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 more about the Jimmys and Joes than the X's and O's. And great players can sometimes supersede maybe a culture. Um, but, man, when you play a game at Sunday at 1 o'clock and it's cold and you're sore and it's later in the season and you have a bunch of guys that are all bought in to the same cause and they respect the head coach and they want to play hard for them, that film just looks a little bit different. I I really loved your segment with Kyle. The whole the whole Kyle podcast was phenomenal, but I really loved the segment where he got, you know, going on a tangent about how much he just loves to win. And that's something that 
I try to think about it in my own uh, context of my own life and my own job. Like what, what is something that pushes me where I think up every day I get up and like, I want to win so bad at this. I'm not sure that there's anything in my life like that. Maybe being a father, I think that that's something now that I, you know, I think it's important. It's like, it's, it's very important to win at that, but it, there's nothing that's driving my competitive spirit every day like the way that Kyle explained in that podcast. And if you haven't heard that yet, Bill's Mafia, wherever you are, go check that out. But I want to ask you, in the room, can you tell and does it bother you when there's guys that maybe don't meet that minimum threshold of where you believe that competitive fire should be? Yes, 100%. And, you know, you see it plain as day when you're playing a meaningless game at the end of December, when you're eliminated from the playoffs and you see people's approach to work that week. Um, it's, it's harder to see maybe in the early stages of the season when it's, when it's a little bit easier, but yes, you see it from guys and, and what Sean and Brandon basically are saying is we're not bringing in guys like that, but you watch the last dance documentary and you see that some people have that fire in them that supersedes others and I'm not saying we had a team full of Michael Jordan type competitors, but what Sean and Brandon want to do is bring in people that have a burning desire to win. And, and I talk about it all the time. One of the hardest transition out of the NFL, to your point, Matt, was not waking up every single day knowing that I wanted to be the best center in the NFL. And that's for my family to provide for them. That is to reward the Buffalo Bills and bring us wins. That is for personal pride and accolades, whatever that brings. But every day I did that. And even if we're on vacation, it's like, okay, well, I'm rejuvenating myself so I can push even harder on the back end. Or it might be a night out with the guys on a Monday night in the season, just knowing that I can hit the reset button. And Tuesday, I'm going to be so fired up to go back to work, you know, but it's also, I wake up at you know, 5.30 during the season every day so that I can be so consistent in my approach every single day. And when I talk to a lot of guys that transition out, that's that's the rut they get into because, yes, we all want to be great husbands and dads, but there's not like a daily metric on that. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you, you're going to find out like when, you're, when your kids are teenagers, if they respect you or not, like how well of a job you did. And like you want to have a – joy-filled dynamic relationship with your wife and you're going to see the fruits of that if you put in the effort but it's not like a graded scale there's not you're not hitting uh free agency and so <laughs> so i digress through all of that to say that that burning desire that when you wake up with it that's that's something that is really tough for nfl players to get past and that's what leads them into some bad business ventures because they say, okay, well, I'm going to go attack commercial real estate or I'm going to go attack the restaurant industry. And unless you have a good team around you and people that know really what they're doing, you can get in some trouble. You know, you mentioned that competitive fire in players. And one, one guy that seems to have that is Josh Allen. And the teammates seem to love him. They, they say that they would do anything for this guy. Uh, but, but he's kind of an interesting player where there's some people in the national media that I think haven't changed their opinion on him, even though he made big strides from year one to year two. They kind of uh, have their own formulated opinions on him where he's never going to hit these uh, completion percentages or do this, and he's not a typical type of quarterback. Uh, where do you fall on Josh Allen, especially after seeing the growth that he made from his rookie year to his sec uh, through his second season? Yeah, I absolutely love the progression that he made. I always say it takes four seconds to make an impression and four years to change it. So when Josh Allen came in the league and everyone said he's a strong-armed, unaccurate quarterback, that's what the narrative became. It didn't matter last year that 90% of the way through the season he was leading the NFL in um, – uh, in actually, I probably got this uh, stat from your guys' podcast. Listening to it on my way to Bills games, but zero, zero to nineteen yards, he had like the top rating in the NFL. But no mm -hmm. one could get, no one could wrap their mind around that. He's still so inaccurate, and he in last year he wasn't hitting on deep balls, which is a lot of I don't want to say luck, but it's chemistry with the receivers, it's protection holding up, it's a number of different things when you're hitting these deep balls down the field, which did come towards the end of the year, but. I love this progression from year one to year two. I thought 
His pocket presence was better. That may have come through a, a revamped, improved offensive line. I thought his pocket presence was better. I thought he made better pre-snap decisions. And the reason I say that is because the ball got out of his hands quicker. Like he knew where he was going based upon safety rotations before the snap even happened. Some of my favorite plays I saw all year was just a quick hitch to John Brown with 10 yards off of coverage with a one hitch and rip it out there. And the bills get nine yards. Like that's the kind of stuff that I was dying to see him do his rookie year. And he did last year. Now, what kind of step can he make this year and where do we need to see him improve? And, you know, I think some of the decision-making um, that people call it hero ball. And that's another narrative, you know, and that's something Josh Allen, um, may admit that when you come from Wyoming and everything falls on your shoulders, at times you feel like you got to do something heroic to make a play. And I think I've heard him say that or someone else said that and he agreed with it. But he's just got to continue to get past that. I want to see what he can do with a bona fide number one receiver in Stephon Diggs with two other guys that can flat separate away from him. You know, Cole Beasley and John Brown can get open, and then you add a Diggs, who is a phenomenal route runner. And I'm I'm anxious just to see what he can do, but I absolutely love his competitiveness. I can't tell you how many text messages I got from people, and, and I talk about the impression deal. Well, there's a lot of people in, let's say, Louisville, Kentucky, where I live now, who didn't know a lot about Josh Allen and formed their opinion off of one game, the Thanksgiving game. All of a sudden, he's this – beast athlete that can throw on the move he's a winner uh he won't be denied a first down on a qb sneak and all this well maybe that's the new narrative on josh allen um and uh i'm excited to see what he can do if he can make another jump into year three because we don't need him to be tom brady for the bills to make a playoff run this year or uh, you could name we don't need him to be patrick mahomes i guess you could say you know, the Bills defense is so good and, and they have enough talent out there that he's just got to be consistent. You know, one thing I'd love is is your perspective on playing for different types of quarterbacks, because when you were in Buffalo, you, you played for some true pocket passers. You had guys that had a lack of mobility like a Kyle Orton, and then you played for with a Tyrod Taylor, a guy that could scramble and run. Josh likes to run with the ball. He throws on the run. What are the pros and cons of playing for a mobile quarterback because sometimes I think maybe if you have a pocket passer, you just know I have to be one-on-one with my assignment. And if I can beat this guy, the quarterback can get it out. But if he takes off too early, that could lead to some issues of their own. So what's your perspective on uh, playing for a a quarterback that, or playing in, in front of a quarterback like Josh Allen, who has that mobility, who will take off sometimes, maybe a little bit too soon from time to time. Yeah, so a guy like maybe a Kyle Orton, who I'm I'm trying to think who was the least mobile quarterback I ever played with, and I'll <laughs> say KO. And but a guy like him, he knows he's got to get rid of the ball fast. And so you might not have to block as long for a guy like Kyle, but he's never going to save you from a sack. You know, I, I'll never forget it. I got beat after not immediately, but it was a line game, so it's it's d- develops and we're at Denver and Von Miller finally beats me and Kyle dives on the ground. I'm like, dude, I haven't given up a sack all year. And you just dove on the ground, like step to your left. But that, that that's Kyle's not going to take shots like that. You know? So for an offense line perspective, sometimes you got to pass protect a little bit longer as a tackle. You probably got to watch your hands a little bit. Cause you could always escape around you. Um, but ultimately, you know, you're blocking the protection that's called and, you know, uh, whether it's a pocket passer or a guy who could scramble, that he could always escape the pocket. I think guys like Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, even Patrick Mahomes to an extent, those guys that move a ton, Russell Wilson, you know, the older they get, those as the shots mount up, you just got to take less and less hits as, the, as your career progresses. Um, this has been great, Eric. Uh Great, great insight. We're gonna we're gonna keep you on here for for a few more minutes. And at, at the end of the show, uh, the fans ha- have a couple of questions. I'm gonna hit you with a little rapid style. But it's funny you you bring up uh, you know Patrick Mahomes and 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 the comparisons to Josh Allen. They both have huge arms. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes has had a a different world of success than most quarterbacks. But you even go to the Super Bowl game, and it's something that I mentioned to Bills fans as they kind of watched a game in Houston where I think. 
a portion of the fan base wanted a little bit more out of Josh in that game. And, and I go to the Super Bowl game and, and I watch Patrick Mahomes for three quarters really struggle against a really good San Francisco defense. And if you take that body of work, just those three quarters and take, you know, uh, some errant passes, the, the completion percentage that probably really wasn't there, but he was able to turn it on in the fourth quarter. And that's something that Josh Allen has already proven to be able to do. I mean, you got to play in one playoff game in your Bills career. Unfortunately for you, obviously, you know, some struggles early on, but can even as a veteran, when you did that, how, how, what was the bright lights of a playoff game like for a team that had never been there? Because my contention is it probably was, you know, eye opening for the Bills with a, with a second year quarterback who was raw coming out to be up 16 nothing in Houston, a game that probably not many people expected them to win. Yeah. Going back to my playoff game, <clears throat> I'd played in Jacksonville a number of times and never did it sound like that atmosphere that we walked into. <laughs> Deafening noise, uh, a really good defense we played in that Jacksonville defense. Everything was sped up a ton, you know, a little bit from the regular season. Kind of felt like a primetime game, maybe even a touch more intense because everyone's going so hard because, you know, there's that that carrot that's right there in the Super Bowl. But, um, yeah, I'm sure it was really tough for a second-year quarterback to step into that environment and never have seen it before, be on the road. And I thought – Josh made some great plays and he competed his tail off and and was he perfect? No, but that, that loss doesn't solely fall on him, obviously. And the bills were in a position with just a couple bad breaks and, and they still walk out of there with that win. But I, I'm excited for Josh to hopefully get back to the playoffs, have a year under his belt where he got to the playoffs, able to learn from it. And um, a guy with the competitive nature that Josh has, you know, that type of loss will just fuel his fire. And you see that he's working out with his receivers now. Uh, I'm sure using social distancing techniques, throwing the football and playing catch and all that. But, um, you know, I, I like that he's seeking out his receivers to, to throw, to progress as a passer, because that's going to fuel him. Um, you, um, one guy I really wanted to spend some time talking to you about is, is Mitch Morse, because as the color commentator, it's a, it's almost like perfect timing that, that you were in that role to watch, you know, uh, a pretty big piece of this offense that got brought in at first year center. And I wanted to get your thoughts on, on how he did and his importance to this offense in year one. Yeah. I thought, I thought he played great. The the concussion scared me to death in the preseason that it could resurface. And, and I thought they made a really smart move with a veteran guy like himself, just rest him and let him completely heal from that. And so I thought that was a smart decision. I was really impressed with him as a player. He's, they, they made him the highest paid center in the league when they brought him in. So um, obviously he had a lot of talent and he comes from a, a good offense in Kansas city. Uh, but, but I think when you have, a, again, when you have your quarterback on his rookie contract, you can bring in a high price center. And I think having a backup that's experienced like Matt Barkley and having an experienced center is so valuable for a guy like Josh Allen to be able to work with and learn from. And, and I was really impressed with Mitch Morris this year. Some of their pin and pull schemes with him out on the perimeter was was awesome. I thought he was great in pass protection. I was really impressed with him. What did you think of um, that one big play in Houston? Uh, I think it was in overtime. It might have been late in the fourth quarter. I can't. I got to go back and watch the game again. Um, but it was it was a pull. It was it was a design run. Josh got on the outside. It worked in the first quarter where he broke it for, I think, a 45-yard run. But that was the one where, you know, he got dinged up. I think he might have even been concussed after that. I mean, he looked like he took a really good shot. But break down that play for me as somebody that played the position. I mean, whose fault is that there? A lot of people blame Dawson. A lot of people blame Mitch. Some people blame Josh. I mean, what, what was going on in that play? Yeah, there's just a lot of miscommunication that can happen outside, out on the perimeter when you get those pin and pull schemes and you're, you're out there in space, and that might be your guy, but – you know, Mitch is probably thinking if Dawson takes him, I'm going to go right off of him. I'm going to get the next guy. And there's our touchdown. There's our huge play. So there could be some miscommunication that happens. It's it. one of the best things about me calling the games right now is that I didn't play for this offense. So I don't know the ins and outs of it to an extent. Mm -hmm. I, they're all plays I've ran, but I don't know exactly how they're coached. So I can comment on it and, and give kind of a non insider info, um, um, 
kind of breakdown of it. So I could say, man, that was a great scheme, or it looked like he checked there, where I'm not like revealing some top te- top secret sauce because I don't even know the ins and outs of the offense. So, and this is kind of one of those scenarios where I don't know who's truly to blame on that. It's unfortunate that it happened. I can't tell you how many times in a season that it happens where it happens right where you kind of switch assignments on the run. Um, but unfortunately there that took that gave Josh Allen a huge lick. You know, one benefit that Josh has this year is that the offensive line is all returning. You know, mind you, they added a guy like Daryl Williams who could come in and take one of those spots. Uh, but when you were playing, how much did you benefit from having the same player on each side of you on a year to year basis? You know, when you had Richie there, how much did that help you knowing that you had someone that, you knew could handle his responsibilities um, compared to maybe having a rookie or uh, someone that you didn't maybe know what you were going to get out of them on a week-to-week basis? Yeah, so a lot is made of continuity up front for the offensive line, and people talk about it all the time. The offensive line's got to gel together, which which does need to happen because there's so much communication that happens at the line of scrimmage to figure out who we're going to block because – the defenses change week to week. You have different schemes each week. There's just so much communication that needs to happen. But ultimately, if you have tough and smart football players and if they're good, you know, you could kind of plug and play, which is what you saw last year when Mitch Morris missed a lot and you're kind of flipping Feliciano here and there. But when you have guys that are – and this is Brandon Bean's philosophy on bringing in offensive linemen. He wants guys that are smart, tough, available. He wants guys that will – you know, play through some dings. So you get guys that play all year long. And, and so this isn't like my personal opinion. I know Bean likes these types of guys and those guys uh, you can trust. And they're, they're a whole lot easier to play with than maybe you bring in a rookie and you don't really know about him. He's not really experienced in the league and, and he's not familiar with the schemes. Do you, um, do you watch professional wrestling at all? Have you ever? Um, I did growing up. Okay, so there's this character, his name's Edge, Adam Copeland. Um, big in like I would say maybe a decade ago. Yeah, I remember Edge. Yeah, suffered suffered a neck injury, said he would never wrestle again. All of a sudden I turned on WWE Raw a couple months ago, and there's there's Edge. He's wrestling again. So it got me to thinking, could we see the return of Eric Wood someday down the line? Or is football completely out of there? I mean, you completely changed your body in every in like many ways so i can't imagine yeah people do you ever get that itch uh do i get the itch do i want to play football again what i would love to yes i didn't want my career and i loved playing football i always joke that like i enjoyed being at the facility and working for the bills and playing for the bills i would argue more than anybody and so i i loved my role with the team that's why i never hit free agency i re-signed my contract with the bills after they let go of Sammy and all those guys. Like, keep that in mind. Like, I was a Bill Bills player for life. If they would have kept me around, I was the first person that Sean uh, Sean and Bean extended. Like, I was all about ball, but no, I'm done. And and it stinks. One, I would never pass a physical again. You know, I still get MRIs on my neck every six or so months, and I'm still in great danger to play football. I can live normal life, play golf, and be a dad and do all that kind of stuff. But no, I can't play football anymore. And the, the bills don't need me anymore. They have a great center and the, the, <laughs> there's no role for me. Like I'm 255 pounds. I'm not a good enough tight end for them. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to beat out any of their defensive ends and they sure as heck don't need a 255 pound center. Um, and I think I've heard it before, but you know, I, I think in, in this time of quarantine personally, uh, I've let things kind of go a little bit, uh, definitely a couple extra pounds over the last three months. So how have you done it to kind of get your body in a place where you're, you're really, uh, you know, you look good, man. I appreciate it. Um, you know, I walk a lot of golf courses right now. Um, mm-hmm. I've been doing some Peloton rides against some guys online, which has been fun to compete against them. I own a gym in Louisville. It's currently shut down and opens back up next week. So I'll get back to the gym there. But, you know, for me, it's all about, uh, it's all about balance. So we went to the lake last weekend. Of course, I drank a couple too many beers and had way too much food, but then you kind of hone it in and you, by midweek, you're kind of back to your normal range. And so it's all about kind of ebbs and flows. Tomorrow night, we're actually hosting a Buffalo night at our house because Bar Bill sent me some wings. Uh, appreciate that, Bar Bill. And so we're probably going to have blue lights and 
uh, barbell wings. And I think we're going to pick, we need to supplement it by the amount of people I invited. We need to supplement it with some other wings from in town here. But um, so, you know, it kind of comes and goes and, you know, I, could I lose more weight and probably be a little bit more healthy? Yes. But like I have my broadcast roles, I think because people want to see a former player in there. And if I get mm-hmm. down to like 220 pounds and I <laughs> look like super thin and emaciated, like one, I don't even know if my wife would a still be attracted to me. Cause that's like so far from the guy that she started dating, which I constantly <laughs> remind her like how, how gross, I, like how much I appreciated that she could look past uh, my 310 pound body, but um, no, I appreciate that. And uh, the quarantine 15 is real though, because when this all started, we were supposed to be, I was supposed to be in Vegas that weekend. We were going on a family trip to Florida the following week. I had reds opening day. I had all kinds of stuff lined up. So I'm like, well, you know, that's kind of an excuse that I was going to be eating bad and drinking a little bit anyway. So like, this is an excuse to just do that. And then after like four or five days, I'm like, no, this is not how I live my life. Like I'm going to give myself, I'm going to put myself like in, in a bad spot. And that's kind of when I was like, okay, well, where do I want to improve during this quarantine? Like, let me improve my relationship with my family. Like, we get to spend so much more time together. I'm not on the road calling spring games. Like I was supposed to, and this and that, um, you know, try and get a little bit healthier because once this quarantine stuff lifts, we'll be, back on the road, traveling, I'll be working and all that. So uh, I had to refocus quick. All right. We're going to, we're going to finish this off with a little rapid fire style. So uh, you could, you can answer as short or as long as you want uh, to any of these questions in there from all the fans. And thank you so much guys for, for joining us on a, on a Wednesday night during quarantine, uh, which is kind of almost over. Cause I think, I think the, uh, we're getting towards um, the end uh, phase two this week in Erie County. Uh, they're starting to talk about potentially reopening uh, some facilities around the league. Uh, so exciting that we're hopefully getting close to the other side of this thing. But so a couple questions here. First things first, your favorite teammate of all time. I actually got asked that today by someone else as well. Um, it's really tough. I have so many lifelong friends. If I had to choose one that I truly enjoyed probably playing with most, and a lot of that comes from the center quarterback connection would be Ryan Fitzpatrick. Mm. Okay. Who will be, uh, we asked Lorenzo Alexander this, so there'll be a nice, uh, comparative uh, question. Who will be the bills breakout player in 2020? Wow. Um, man, uh, man, that's a great question. They have so many guys that have like already broke out per se. Um, you know, kind of an under the radar guy, you know, I'm I'm actually interested to see who who Zoe chose. I'll take Ed Oliver and hope he's not suspended too long. Yeah, and, and it could be a situation where he's not even suspended until 2021, uh, depending on how that plays out. But I, I like that pick just because you know he's a guy that when he flashed last year, I mean, he looks all the bit special that I think Brandon anticipated when they took him ninth overall. Zoe uh Zoe stayed on the defensive side of the ball, uh, and he went uh, Saran Neal, who I think is a very interesting guy, obviously standout special teams player, but somebody that potentially could impact in that big nickel role, can play some safety, can even play some outside corner. I thought he looked good on the outside when they put him out there. Yeah, and that's a valuable asset. The Bills are stockpiled at, at, in the secondary, which is a, such a huge asset in the league nowadays. All right. If you go into coaching, is it a safe assumption you'd want to coach offensive line? And if you could coach any position, what would they be and why? Yeah, I think realistically, I'd probably have to start offensive line just based upon my knowledge there. But um, if I got into coaching just the way I'm wired, I would probably want to be an offense coordinator eventually um, and then maybe a head coach. Who was the toughest nose tackle in three, four straight up that you ever faced? Um, man, we I didn't face a lot of three, four nose guards towards the end of my career. Early on, Vince Wilfork was excellent. He was so tough to move. Um, but when I, when I walked into the division, it was Vince Wilfork, Chris Jenkins, and Paul Soliai in Miami. Three just stud, huge dudes. Um, the best nose guard that I faced, like well-rounded, and I'm not talking about just stature was Damon Harrison, who was with the Jets, went on to the Giants in Detroit. Just a really tough D tackle. 
uh, most anticipated game this year in 2020 for the Bills on the schedule? I mean, there are so many, like, I'm looking forward to the Thursday night game. That's going to be a tough work assignment probably for me because I'll be going straight from there to an ACC Mm -hmm. game and all that. If Vegas is rolling, I have a lot of buddies that are meeting me out there, which is going to be like, okay, we got to really rein it in Saturday night when I come in for my ACC game, but then let loose after the game. Like, I think Vegas will be a ton of fun. Nashville is an awesome trip. Um, Man, there's a bunch. Uh, and then finally, uh, season prediction and AFC East. Where do the Bills finish? I got to take them first in the AFC East. You know, I think, I think eleven wins is probably if I had to if I had to bet on a number, I would I would say eleven wins. Um, could they get to 12, 13? Realistically, yes. Wow, twelve or thirteen. So. Ryan will uh, speak a little bit about this. He's got him winning 12. I went with 11 just because of the difficulty of going out West four times. But I think that this roster's built. And listen, like we said at the beginning of the show, we both grew up Bills fans. So a lot of fans sometimes definitely throw some Homerism uh, criticism my way. But honestly, I, I've, I was talking about this with um, you know a few people over the last couple of weeks that you know when you cover the team like in, in the role that I'm at and you know the people that I deal with and the questions that I have to ask it's it's hard to maintain that that fan passion that you once had. Don't get me wrong. In Dallas, there was a feeling that came over me that was a real happiness for my family, the city. Like that's a moment that this place has waited for my entire life. I mean, I remember sitting around, you know, my grandfather's room in Super Bowl 25 when Scott missed that kick and, you know, no offense, Scott, but you know, that, that was a moment that, you know, that was supposed to be the big moment for the city. And it's almost like it's never happened. I felt like that Dallas game was a real nice one for the city, but um, no, I think 11, 12 wins, but Ryan, you, you got 12 wins for him this year. Yeah, and a lot of that came down to the AFC East as a whole, in my opinion. I, I like, for for instance, I love where the two Jets games are positioned. Week one, I, I know you said if you have good offensive line play, they can get together. But week one, you, you have a young rookie, you have a lot of new offensive linemen there. I don't think there's going to be enough time for that unit to gel. Then the Bills get them after that Thursday night game against the Chiefs, so more time to prepare there. You get a Dolphins team in week 17, if it is a meaningful game for Buffalo. A game in Buffalo against Miami, I always like things like that. Uh, and then, obviously, with the Patriots, you know, you never want to sell them short, but who knows what you're going to get out of Jared Stidham. Uh, it's not even safe to assume that he can play at the level where Tom Brady was last year. And Tom Brady was still a, a fine quarterback. He wasn't Tom Brady of, of old or of his prime, but you could win with that. I, I just don't know what you're going to get out of that. And then there are just some other games mixed in there. Uh, where you have a, a team like Seattle, where they when they come in, they're not going to overlook the Bills, but they have a game against the Rams and the 49ers one week before the Bills game, one week after. So they have some tough divisional matchups. So the fact that the Bills get a little bit extra rest this year, the, the way the schedule broke down, I just liked and I, I saw 12 potential wins personally. Yeah, you also have three West Coast teams traveling east for one o'clock games in Orchard Park. That's That, that I would imagine, is probably the toughest travel situation to play a game what feels like for you 10 a.m 100 he is eric wood uh check out the uh what's next with eric wood podcast it is a must listen for bills fans football fans and sports fans a lot of good shows coming up anything else that people should be aware of that you want to shout out here no no i appreciate the opportunity to come on with you guys it's been a lot of fun like i said i i, I did a bunch of syracuse games last year and so I would drive from Syracuse to Buffalo, and I really enjoyed tuning into your guys' uh, podcast. And I would honestly pull out my phone and take some notes because Sal and Chris Brown, who I do the roundtable with before the show, they spent all week covering the Bills. And so we do that roundtable. And during the preseason, I just felt like I need like some sources that are not them and you know a little bit different takes on some stuff and i love some of your guys like advanced stats that you guys would put out there and so um i've been a fan of your guys so um this was fun to do that was our interview with eric wood former bill center and current color commentator on game days uh eric was uh, uh generous with his time giving us an hour tonight 
uh, and he really killed it. Uh, make sure you check out his podcast, like we mentioned. And while you're listening to this podcast, if you could subscribe, rate, and review, we'd really appreciate it as we continue to try to grow our fan base. And also a special uh, little project that we have on the horizon. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, Matt Perino, at Matt Perino, uh, send me a DM if you're interested in participating, um, tossing around a, a podcast idea, and uh, it's going to have some some fan involvement. So hit me up in my DMs uh, if you're interested, and I'll give you some more details. As always, we appreciate your support, and we will see you next week uh, with uh, our, my second family episode. Uh, we'll drop sometime Sunday or Monday, and it's going to be with Uncle Steve this week. Uh, so brace yourselves. Have a great week, guys.